Thanks for joining us for another OSU Extension Garden Q&A. This session focuses on home lawns in the Willamette Valley and features the OSU Beaver Turf Team, Dr. Alec Kowaleski and Brian McDonald. The session was recorded live online in mid-May 2020. All right, hello and welcome everybody to the OSU Extension Home Lawn Q&A with our OSU Beaver Turf Team. My name is Brooke Edmonds, and I'm joining you from my home in Salem, and we have two guests today uh, joining us as well. Hey everybody, Alec Kovaleski, the turf specialist at Oregon State University. Uh, I teach undergrad classes in turf and landscape management, uh, plant nutrition and irrigation, and then I also uh, provide extension work like master gardener training and then Brian McDonald and I run the research program together. So Brian. Hello everybody. I'm Brian McDonald. I'm the research assistant. I work at a extension farm and so I do a lot of maintenance along with um, uh, the research I do. I've been at OSU for 20 years and I'm kind of a generalist. I've researched everything uh, from fertilizers to herbicides to disease control to insect control. So I have a pretty broad, um, broad background, so. Great, all right, you guys ready to go? So I see folks are starting to put your questions. If you could please um, use the Q&A box and not the chat, and it's just a great way for us to match up your questions. Um, we did receive a couple questions ahead of time by email. And so um, while you guys are thinking of some questions, we'll start with those. So a first question to kick us off, are lawns even worth all the effort? Okay, so the, the question is, are lawns worth the uh, effort? So I think if you're deciding what to make of your landscape, whether it's gonna be uh, turf grass, a garden bed, a plantation of trees, what do you want out of that landscape? And if someone's considering turf grass management, uh, we should think about these rock three primary things that turf grass provides. Some people find it aesthetically pleasing. Some people use it for recreation. And then there's a whole list of functional components that come along with turf grass as well. So some of those functional components include redu reduced surface runoff and enhance water recharge. Grass is great at making water go back down into the ground, where if you have bare soil or open mulch, mulch beds, water can have a tendency to run across the surface and erode the landscape. Uh, the other big benefit in the urban environment is temperature moderation. Uh, rather than hardscapes and bare soil, turf grass will reduce the temperature in the summertime uh, substantially reducing the, the weather uh, in and around urban environments. And then uh, fire barrier is the last functional component that I think of. A lot of times we have turf grass around buildings to stop the spread of fire into these buildings. So that's my short list of uh, functional, recreational, and aesthetic points for turf management or turf grass. So that's a resounding yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely worth the effort. I agree. Um, one more question that came in from Patrick, and this is about uh, some of the vertebrae critters that we deal with. 
Uh, he would like to know, should I give up trying to eradicate moles um, and accept the beneficial nature of their being in the yard? Is there any benefit or are there um, ways that you guys might recommend managing moles in lawns? Um, so I've dealt with moles at our farm for 20 years and they're pretty destructive. Um, the problem with them is they create big mounds and they dig lots of dirt. And the interesting thing is that one mole can, um, can pr uh, produce a lot of mounds. So it's more about if, can you tolerate it than can you manage it? Um, I trap them with, um, and, and uh, as Patrick, I guess, Patrick said he's not particularly good at trapping them. I, I don't find trapping them that difficult. And I've seen a lot of people, um, a lot of different people show me what they do and everybody seems to do a little bit differently and most are effective. I think persistence is a good thing and maybe the, the trap you're using. So, um, you know, in terms of benefit, I'm not sure they provide any benefits in the lawns. Um, um, they eat, primar primarily they eat earthworms. Um, and so um, earthworms are beneficial to lawns. So it's, it's almost counter, counterproductive a little bit, but, um, but I'm sure that they provide some ecological um, benefits. So it becomes a personal decision. If you're saying, should I, give up eradicate them because you're not good at it. I think you could hire someone to do it or just um, get some advice from someone who's done it before. And just to give you a quick pointers, um, I use the, cla the clamp um, traps, which are like this. And um, basically what I look for is you look for the mounds in a straight line where they're um, in, and then you, dig a hole between the two mounds effectively. And that, that works pretty well. And, and the, the trap is, and you wanna uh, set it carefully and make sure that they can't um, sense it by putting clods of dirt in front of it. And then I cover it basically with dirt and then put a flag in there. The big concern is, is that somebody doesn't stumble upon it or kids get into it. And, and, hurt themselves because those clamp those things can really hurt you if you <laughs> if you go off and um so oh, <laughs> yeah so it's you know sometimes when the when i can't find an area where there's where the the mounds are sort of in a straight line um it can take a while to try i mean in that case i think um they're cut they're, they're maybe heading to their burrows down lower and so they're coming up randomly and it can take Sometimes it can take a while to trap them, but in most, most cases I can catch them in a day or two. So it's, it's not difficult. You just have to kind of know how to set them and use the right trap. And, um, but in terms of whether, I can't tell you whether it's, it's worth it for you to leave them or not. They, do, they are really destructive though to logs. Great, thanks Brian. Uh, so Stephen has a question about um, after mowing, Grass clippings, pick them up or leave them as mulch? What do you think? Um, no. Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one. So I think you should return your grass clippings, Stephen. Um, research has shown that if you return your grass clippings, you can add about two pounds of uh, nitrogen applied as fertilizer back into the soil. So we talk about fertilizing the lawn four times a year. Add a pound of nitrogen each time. 
So if you're removing the clippings, you're taking away about half of the fertilizer you're putting onto the lawn. So return your clippings and the best way to do that is a mulching blade, which has two sets of blades mounted on top of each other down underneath the mower. And if you went to a home improvement store where they sold lawn mowers and you asked the sales rep in the lawn care or gardening department about mulching blades, they'd tell you where to go to find those. Great, thank you. Yeah, the only exception I would say is if you're mowing your grass, you waited too long to mow it, and it's and there's so much grass that it's kind of covering the lawn, then, then in that case, you probably wanna, at least for that mowing, you probably wanna remove it because you're blocking the sun from the grass. Yeah, I'm totally guilty of that in the early <laughs> spring. It's like it catches up with you and you're like, holy yeah, Moses, yeah. I gotta go do we something. See that, we see that a lot in the spring because people kind of don't think about mowing their lawns until um, through the winter and don't realize it's growing. And then I see people mowing six inch grass. And if you're leaving it on their, on their lawns, you can actually do damage that way. Um, Susan has a question. Uh, should I aerate the lawn? And if so, what time of year is best to aerate a lawn? So it, aeration is a good thing. It, it, it's, uh, it's something that provides basically oxygen. It reduces compaction and it actually, you can, it saves, um, you can actually save up 20 to 25% of water if you water carefully. So you either wanna aerate in the spring um, so April, May-ish, um, or in the fall. Um, we, we've done trials with student, uh, uh, grad students, done a couple trials where when they aerated in April, they actually found they saved 20 to 25% um, uh, water, um, just based on, um, he, was, he was looking at, I mean, uh, um, at the plots every day, but, um, you, there is basically water savings to be had. And it has to do with just water infiltration is a lot more even. So you don't have the problem with the water stand and surface and potentially evaporating. Um, does, that's not to say you wouldn't, if you've never aerated, if you aerate in the fall, you wouldn't get similar savings um, versus no aeration. But um, the one thing you don't wanna do is aerate when it's in the summertime when it's hot. Um, because uh, it just, it will just, the holes won't, they'll just dry out and it'll be worse. So, um, and usually the easiest way for a homeowner to aerate is to aerate and then rent a dethatcher along with it and then act and then dethatch the, the plugs and the lawn together kind of and break up all that soil and let it go back down into the, into the holes. And you can rake it afterwards too to kind of help it um, and just make sure it's not, you don't want it too wet. Um, that's the one disadvantage of trying to do it in April is you gotta make sure that, you know, you might take a plug or a shovel and see how wet it is first, because it shouldn't be wet. It needs to be moist, but not, not rock hard and not real wet. So sort of in between. Neat, thank you. Um, how about we jump in and talk about a few questions on weed management. So Lori has a question about getting rid of the poa anos. Is that how you say that? Is that annual? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and other pesky weeds that reseed, like oxalis. And I there's a couple of um, poa annuals grass actually. Yeah. 
Well, they're mentioning also the office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know if you want to address individual weeds because it looks like folks are having some issues. So there's uh, velvet grass issues, quack grass oh. issues. I don't know how you, how, how would you guys like to tackle uh, thinking about weed invaders? So I'll, I'll jump in on this. Um, I think the first thing to think about is uh, integrated pest management. And when people talk about integrated pest management, they usually start with pest prevention. And when we talk about our recipe for healthy lawns, which will outcompete uh, summer and winter annual weeds like annual bluegrass and oxalis, we're going to fertilize four times a year, twice in the spring and twice in the fall. We're going to mow once a week at about a two to three inch height. And we're going to irrigate uh, about four times a week at a quarter of an inch from, you know, after or around Memorial Day to about Labor Day. So that first, those three primary cultural practices there, the frequent mowing, the frequent fertilization, and the irrigation four times a week through the summer is really going to do a lot to make your grass healthy and help it resist annual weeds like annual bluegrass anoxalis. As we get into some of the more hard to control broadleaf weeds, we typically apply broadleaf herbicides for those in the fall. And again, if we're doing proper integrated pest management, we only need to make a herbicide application once every five years or 10 years. We're not making herbicide applications every year if we're managing the turf grass properly. Some active ingredients that are great for these broadleaf weeds include 2,4-D, MCPP, dicamba, and then triclopyr, which is particularly good on clover and other spreading laterally growing weeds. So something like velvet grass, on the other hand, that is very difficult to remove from your lawn. Uh, I think if you focus on managing the grass, uh, if you do get velvet grass in your lawn and you want to take it out, I would remove it with a shovel. Uh, or I would just live with the vel velvet bent grass in your lawn, like the Crosby, Nash & Stills song. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with, right? So sometimes it's hard to get these troublesome grass weeds out of our lawn. Maybe we should just figure out a way to live with them. Would you like to add anything, Brian? No, I think that's good. I think the, the number one question we get is how to control poa annual or annual bluegrass because it's the grass that seeds at mowing height. And to give everybody just the context of that, so all the golf courses in Western Oregon and Washington um, are nearly 100% annual bluegrass in spite of the fact that it, none of that was planted. And in spite of the fact that um, they've spent, you know, millions of dollars collectively trying to control it. So, you know, when you're talking about annual bluegrass and to extent the other grasses, um, um, that invade bent grass and, and some of the other ones. Um, unfortunately, even though we, we grow all the different grasses in Oregon, um, our lawns all convert over time. And I think what Alex said is, is absolutely right. It's more about management 
of the of your lawns. If you go to a golf course, everybody thinks that they look beautiful. Well, that's because they're managing it well. It's not because of the grass species they have. Um, so, you know, I think you need to, um, in, when people first plant ryegrass and it's dark green, you see these contaminants that are lighter, it looks bad. But in a few years, they kind of all coalesce and then it's about, you know, man, you know maintaining your lawn with the, the items that Alec mentioned. Great, thank you. Um, Sandy has a question about what type of grass or grass seed would you recommend if half of the lawn is in a deep shade and the other half is in full sun? So very different growing conditions. What are some tips for having a successful lawn in that type of situation? Well, I would, I would recommend that you probably put low growing ground covers in the deep shade. Nothing does well in in deep shade. I mean, turf doesn't grow well in deep shade. So that's my number one recommendation. In terms of if you're trying to grow grass there, um, what you basically, the cultural practices that you change a little bit are is you're going to mow a little bit higher, you're going to apply less fertilizer, and you're going to apply less water. Because what's what happens under shade is it's a high, it becomes a high humidity environment that holds a lot of moisture and it becomes, um, the grasses become susceptible to a lot of uh, leaf spot diseases in the winter time. So something like perennial, or something even like uh, fine fescue, which is reputed to be, um, you know, one of the best shade grasses, um, is, you know, gets leaf spot diseases badly in wet shade. So, so there aren't a lot of great choices, and especially when you're talking about deep shade. So, um, you know, what, what you could do, what's decent is uh, colonial bent grass. I would probably plant a mixture of uh, perennial ryegrass at four pounds per thousand to, to act as a nurse, nurse grass with colonial bent grass. And then, you know, that, can, that uh, does well in both areas and it has at least a decent chance of, of, um, of doing okay in the shade, but nothing's gonna do great in especially deep shade. So I would probably plant something else under the deep shade, but. There's um, two questions about moss. And I know Alec, you have a publication on moss. Um, so Marilyn wants to know about managing moss in a lawn. And then Deborah has already killed the moss in their yard, in their lawn. But now they want to know, should they get rid of it? And how should they get rid of that dead moss? So sort of a two, two questions in one talking about moss in lawns. Sure. So uh, as I always, when I think about moss management, um, I always like to bring in the pest triangle. So remember with the pest triangle, we have a pest host and some environmental condition here. And the environmental condition is weakening the host, the lawn, and allowing the moss to thrive. So I know you all know the answers to this already. What environmental conditions make the lawn weak and the moss thrive? It's the shade and the rain and the low fertility. So if we can do things to increase sunlight, and if we can increase fertility by fertilizing, we'll make our grass a lot healthier and make it outcompete the uh, moss in the lawn. 
okay? So we need to prune trees, trim trees, try to get sunlight into our lawn and then fertilize it twice in the spring and twice in the fall. Um, so that's, that's the first step or if you want to prevent the moss from coming back, that needs to be done. You need to prune the trees and keep up with your fertilization. Uh, some ways to get rid of the moss is to apply a product with uh, ferrous ammonium sulfate or uh, carfentrazone in it. And I think actually carfentrazone cannot be applied by homeowners. Is that right, Brooke? Is I don't remember, but that may be true. Yeah. Uh, so I would apply like a moss out product also, which has uh, fatty acid soap in it. So I would apply the product about now. I would go and rent a dethatcher or get a couple of young people with some uh, spring rakes. And I would rake out the uh, dead moss and then I would fertilize the area and then add grass seed to it, okay? And Brian talked about bent grass. I think uh, perennial ryegrass and fine fescue are also great options to include with the bent grass. So you could pick any of those grasses to, for, to add back into this bare area that you want to convert from moss to turf and then make sure to keep fertilizing it in the spring and the fall to keep it healthy and moss free. Thank you, Alex. I would just say that uh, moss out um, is Lily Miller moss out. That's, it's a liquid iron product. And there are fatty acid soaps that you can buy that are, um, the, the downside to iron products is they turn everything black. And I've done a few trials on moss, and, and I think it's more effective actually to dethatch the moss first to remove as, and you can remove easily 80% of it by dethatching, and then apply your moss product after dethatching. Um, and because you're gonna, what that's gonna be is gonna kill the stuff that's left over. Thank you. Um, looks like Jean is going to be laying some sod and went through and killed the old grass, the old lawn with Roundup and is planning to lay out this sod. What should they do to prepare that, that new ground to be rolling out some sod? Well, I think if you're doing sod, um, I would probably, if you sprayed out, it's a little bit of a challenge. I would probably sod cut the old sod out and remove it and then lay the new sod. One is you end up with the same level, you know, cut out the section that is the same thickness. Um, another option, which is sort of called a renovation, I don't know if I like this option as well, but um, if you take a dethatcher after spraying along with Roundup, you can go over it multiple times and basically, um, basically remove all the all the organic debris the, or the, all the tissue. The problem is, is you still have sort of the root system there and you're laying the sod kind of over a thatchy, uh, potentially thatchy organic layer. So I think if I'm laying sod, I'm gonna probably sod cut, um, sod cut it and put the down to soil and then lay the sod back over the top of it. I mean, the other option, if you have a tiller that's in the areas is you could just till it, till it up a bunch of times, but that's a lot of work because the sod ends up, you have to till it just a ton to break the sod into small enough parts that it, that it doesn't cause problems, so. 
Alec, you got any additions to that? No, okay. no I, I think sod cutting it off is a great idea. Um, how about we talk about fertilizing for a moment? So Grady, it sounds like Grady has heard Alex speak at a previous Master Gardener training and recommended the um, fertilizing four times a year. And so thinking about it, about the holidays, uh, the holiday schedule, I think that's what you, what you refer to it as, the Memorial Day, 4th of July, Labor Day, and Thanksgiving. Uh, so Grady's asking, would it be better to fertilize in April or May rather than waiting until the end end of May, Memorial Day for that spring fertilizing treatment. Okay, so Grady, the, the four times a year, they're, they're just general guidelines. And we use those holidays to help people remember. So the idea is you're fertilizing twice in the spring and twice in the fall. It doesn't have to be Memorial Day, July 4th, Labor Day, and Thanksgiving. I kind of joke around that you could change these to uh, tax time or Easter. Um, you could also change the, the Labor Day and Thanksgiving one to uh, Halloween or something like that. But the idea is you're doing it twice in the spring and twice in the fall, trying to hit periods of uh, mean temperatures that are 60 to 75 degrees when cool season grass is growing the most and has the ability to develop the most roots, produce the most lateral growth. Uh, fertilizing those time of year, those times of the year is gonna be the most beneficial because that's when the, grow, the grass is growing and developing and recovering from tough parts of the year. The only downside to fertilize it in April or earlier spring is if your lawn's already fairly healthy um, because we the, the, the lawns are usually growing really fast in April already and with our moisture what what for example golf courses want to avoid is, is if they fertilize too much in April it grows too much grass and then you're mowing you've got that clipping problem where you're mowing but you have too much grass so they call it mowing hay so but that implies, you know, if your turf is lean, there's no reason not to fertilize in April. But if, but in general, turf grows pretty, pretty fast. I mean, it's almost the fastest growing month of the year. Um, so that's one of the main reasons why we sort of wait until May. It's, it's drier. The turf, the growth is slowing down a little bit. Um, but, you know, if, 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 whenever your grass is lean, it's okay to fertilize it. Thank you. Um, I might jump down to the list down through our Q&A. So John has a, a question and I'm not sure you guys will be able to answer this. We can always pass it back out um, about discussing the pros and cons of an eco lawn or an echo lawn, particularly where he's at in the southern Willamette Valley. I know there's a try. I know that you have some trials in Corvallis. So I don't know if maybe that is shedding some light on how this might be used for a home lawn situation. Do you want me to do that one, Alec, or? Oops. He's muted. There we it's go. your turn, Brian. Okay, <laughs> that's right. Um, so eco lawns were developed uh, by Tom Cook, um, who was, uh, Professor Emeritus at OSU and was here for 30 years and I actually worked for eight years with. Um, and 
the idea of the eco lawn was to have a lawn. So first of all, uh, with reduced inputs, but by definition, a lawn meant to Tom is that you're still mowing it basically. Uh, but you're, you're um, and in most cases it includes um, the ingredients are oftentimes ryegrass. Um, they are, um, yarrow is a big component because it's the grass, it's the plant that stays green. It's kind of your indicator for, for irrigation in the summer. It's the plant that stays the greenest. It's got clover in it and it had English daisy. Um, and then some other sometimes flowers in it as well. The flowers tend not to persist, although I've, I've heard people let it grow up a lot taller and let the flowers recede. And that's, uh, and they, uh, that seems to work, although it's sort of, enters a different category in terms of that wasn't how it was envisioned to, to grow. Because um, you're not, you know, you're supposed to be mowing it, at, you know, whatever, three inches or something. Um, so the key, there's a couple keys to it. And there's, there's some, there's some limitations. Um, some of the, the, one of the main keys is, in the summertime, the way you control mowing is through limited irrigation. Okay, so if you irrigate it too much, it's still gonna, it's gonna grow too much. You're gonna need to mow it more. So that's the key. Um, in general, you don't need to fertilize it because it's got the clover in it. Um, so, and if you don't irrigate it in the summer, the clover is gonna go away. So there's all these management things. The other sort of downside is that if you get other weeds that are unsightly, how do you control them because the clover is a broadleaf weed and the yarrow is a broadleaf weed. So um, you can, if you're, well, you can, you can play with like half rates. We played with half rates of 2,4-D because 2,4-D is not especially strong on clover. And that, that tended to work, but for home, most homeowners, that's a pretty um, kind of advanced thing to try to do. Um, but you know, so the, and the other issue is seeding it because the seed sizes is, is um, are vary so much. Some of the weed seeds are incredibly tiny. And, and oftentimes when I see it seeded, you get the grass comes in fine, the, the yarrow can be fine or it can be sparse, the clover can, you know, so it's not, a lot of times the plants aren't seeded consistently across the lawn. So that's a, that's a, another kind of critical thing because if you don't get the plants evenly, then you have. Um, the other thing is, is Tom experimented with different grasses like bent grass, which is a great low maintenance lawn or fine fescue, but they were too aggressive and you just, he just ended up with a bent grass lawn or a fine fescue lawn. So, so yeah. So I, I hope, does that answer the question? <laughs> It was a pretty broad question. So. Yeah, so I mean, the, the whole goal is once you get it established, you know, you mow it, you know, you water it hopefully monthly, three week, every three weeks of the month or when the yarrow starts going dormant deeply, you know, you can mow it every three weeks. The, the downside to other weeds are is they'll produce the flower stems that will, that, you know, will make the thing need mowing even though the rest of the lawn is fine. So. Um, that kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. Um, but it can work if you get a good stand and you know what you're doing. And it comes down to watering it, you know, figuring out how to water it really in the summertime.
I know when we had a, a sustainable lawn school out at the Corvallis turf farm, everyone was ooing and eyeing over the plots and you know, you're doing some work with the um, pollinator health team too. So it'd be interesting over time to see what comes out of those plots um, for bee health and things. Um, and hopefully Vicki, that answers your question too about good choices for ground cover. So one of these echo lawns might be a, a choice there. Um, how about we go to Stephen? Stephen has a question about watering lawns. So maybe you could speak to what time of day these lawns should be watered. And if anybody, while they're answering these questions, if you have any more questions, you can feel free to put them into the Q&A box. We have some time still. Okay, so uh, what time of day should you water? Um, so Stephen, uh, we're gonna quickly back up and talk about photosynthesis. So think about what's needed for photosynthesis. You've got sunlight coming down from the sun. You've got CO2 coming into the plant from the atmosphere. And then you've also got water. So the plant uses those three things to make carbohydrates. So if the sun and the CO2 and the water are not all present at the same time, the plant can't maximize photosynthesis. So when we talk about different times of day to irrigate, that kind of crosses off our nighttime irrigation. Uh, the other thing that happens to a plant in the middle of the day or the early afternoon is when it gets hot, the plant is losing its water to the atmosphere and it goes into this state where it stops producing carbohydrates and goes into survival mode called photorespiration. So the plant's not trying to produce carbohydrates during the heat of the day, it's just trying to survive. So if we want to maximize carbohydrate production and really help and push this plant, we should be irrigating early in the morning, getting the water into the plant when the sun is just coming out and before the plant is into the heat stress of the day. So irrigating early in the morning, right around dawn is the best time for your irrigation. Thank you. Um, couple more questions coming in. So I don't know, we wanna look at Steven's question about, he has a old lawn, so about a 30 year old established lawn but now it seems like it's raising itself up over the years and is up above the edging pavers. Um, and so is there any way at this point to address that buildup there? And the thought was that maybe he could peel the sod back and pull some off and then put it back down. Um, so what are some tips on dealing with older lawns and buildup? You know, that's, a, that's actually a great idea. Um, what the easiest thing to do, and actually golf courses have this uh, similar issue, they, um, they're called collar dams, which is the grass that grows around the outside of putting greens. And when these top dress, it sort of accumulates there at higher rates. And then pretty soon the water runs and it doesn't run off the green, creates a dam. So the easiest way to solve that problem is run a sod cutter, sod cut your turf, pull the sod off, and then take the sod cutter and cut off a second section and then, and then um, of soil and basically remove that layer of soil and then put the sod back 
back on and you've solved your problem. Would you have to then um, take any special care of that lot? I mean, you're essentially resodding it with your own sod, right? Yeah, so, so I mean, the big thing is, you know, I would just recommend cutting the sod uh, as deep as you can initially. And then, because you can, the sod cutters you rent have adjustable uh, depths on them. And then you can, depend on how much, you know, how much you need to lower it, you can either make multiple passes or you can adjust the depth to, to uh, smaller passes. And then the main thing is whenever you have new sod, the big thing is you got to make sure you water it thoroughly. Um, you know, you might also, since you've got the sod off, you might see how compacted the soil is and just take a tiller or something to, to make sure that the soil's not super hard. That's gonna allow the roots to grow into that soil a little easier um, underneath. But the main thing with any time you, you put sod down is irrigation. And so I would do that job in um, probably the end of September, going into our rainy season. Cause then you're not, you've got nine months of, of wet, you know, damp weather, you're not going to have, you're not going to lose because it's hard to, it's sort of hard to irrigate those street lawns anyways, um, which is, that's what I think he's talking about. But um. Great, thank you. I'm going to jump down to Betty. Betty has a question. Is a slow release fertilizer better for a lawn? What are some of the options folks do for fertilizing? So, um, uh, Betty, when we talk about fertilizers, um, this we can use this to answer another question that we got too about uh, are some fertilizers safer than other fertilizers? We'll touch on that a little bit too. So uh, when you buy a fertilizer, if you buy organic fertilizer, it's some kind of organic matter that has to be broken down where the nutrients are now in a plant available form. Uh, so when you buy a synthetic fertilizer, you're buying the nutrients in their plant available form. So you're just kind of taking out that organic decomposition process. So I know you all have a lot of lecturers talk about soil health. So if you apply organic fertilizers, it does drive soil health development because the microbes in the soil are breaking down the organic fertilizer. If you apply synthetic fertilizers, you're kind of skipping that step, usually with quick release synthetic fertilizers. So you're, you're not pushing that soil health, which you'll hear a lot of other speakers talk about. Okay, and then the other thing to consider is plants have been long adapt to slow release fertilizers, organic sources of nutrients. That's how plant systems have developed without human interaction. So you can have a very nice lawn from organic and slow release fertilizers. Uh, I like to remind people, the master gardeners, that there is a species on the planet that thrives from instant gratification, and that is human beings. We put down fertilizer and we want to see the grass become green after we do it. So that's a lot of times the reason we use quick release fertilizers. Lawns can look great with organic slow release fertilizers. Synthetics are an option as well. And typically we use synthetics because they're quick release 
and we can see the response relatively quickly. Thank you. Um, maybe we could just stick with fertilizers just for one more question. A question came in from uh, Leonard. Is there a difference between the, the summer and the winter fertilizers? I think that you might see these on a shelf at a garden center. There's a lot of different options on timing. You, can you no, it's, it's mostly, that's mostly marketing. Um, you know, they, the one thing, so, you know, the, the, the two nutrients that people are, that environmentally people are concerned about in general are, are nitrogen and, and phosphorus. And basically, um, if you get um, leaching or runoff, it gets into the rivers and causes problems. Um, um, so, but a lot, you know, what I would do is stick with, and a lot of fertilizers, I guess now, phosphorus got kind of banned in Washington and, I, and a lot of fertilizers now don't have phosphorus in them. Um, but I would just stick with a uh, sort of a balanced fertilizer and use the same one all year round. And the plant, I mean, we tend to rec recommend sort of a ratio of like 514 or something, um, but that's just a, kind of a guideline. So that's five parts um, nitrogen, one part phosphorus, uh, four parts potassium. Um, so that's, but it, you know, a lot of times they're like 28, 315 or something like that, or 33. Now a lot of them, like I said, are like 33010 or something. Um, so the, the percentage is, um, it, the first number is nitrogen, which also speaks to understanding like organic versus synthetics. Most synthetics, well, almost all of them are real low nitrogen percentage, um, which in and of itself doesn't mean anything other than it takes a lot more fertilizer to put the same amount of nitrogen. When we apply fertilizers, what we're doing is we're applying it based on a, the pounds of nitrogen per, per area, like per thousand square feet. So you know, if you've got a, let's just say a 5% nitrogen organic, to put down a pound of nitrogen, it's 20 pounds of fertilizer. Where if you have a 25% uh, uh, fertilizer of N fertilizer, it's only four, four pounds. So you got 20 pounds versus four pounds. So it's a big difference in, and, but it's still putting the same amount of nitrogen down. It's just more fertilizer because there's, um, there's only 6% nitrogen or 5% nitrogen in that organic fertilizer. Great. Um, Leonard, I saw that you have a question about grubs. If you have a specific question, feel free to type that in so we can address your grub question. Um, how about we jump back to weeds and weed management? A couple of ones we might've missed when we discussed weeds earlier. Uh, John wants to know if you, ha you guys have any tips or hints to treat horsetail weeds in a lawn. And then I'm not sure if your previous answer also addressed to Susan's question about quackgrass. I wasn't sure. So if you could just reiterate. Weed sure. So there, there's a list of really hard to control weeds in lawns and horsetail and quackgrass are both on that list. I would put annual bluegrass in that list. And then I often have people ask me about controlling bent grass and other cool season grasses that have invaded their grass lawn. So when you get grasses inside grasses and then other weeds like horsetail that spread with rhizomes, 
they're very hard to control. And I think with horsetail, the best way to control that is frequent roundup applications in regular mowing. So knocking it down once a week to deplete the uh, uh, plant's growth. Uh, and remember, if you apply Roundup, a non-selective herbicide that will kill grass. So if you have horsetail in your lawn and you spray this, it will kill your lawn. But uh, mowing the horsetail horse down weekly will do a lot to reduce its growth and development and kind of phase it out. Yeah, I saw that in my neighborhood uh, walks that we were taking. We have a neighbor that um, was doing some spot treatments and they, they definitely burnt out these big patches in their yard looking like they're getting the dandelions and now they just have these big dead spots that they have to go back in and try to, try to fill in. So. Yeah, that'll be a um, so, okay. So Leonard did a follow-up on his grub question. And so it sounds like the grubs are ruining the lawn and then the lawn is getting lifted up almost like a rug. You guys have experience with grubs and what other things might be affecting the lawn coming for the grubs maybe? So does, if he could write in and tell me what time of year he's having the problem. I mean, we basically have two, two insect problems um, in, in Oregon, uh, crane fly, uh, usually European crane fly. And the other one is, um, um, <laughs> I'm blanking. What is it, Alec? It's uh, um, bill bugs. Bill bugs. Oh, bill bugs. So, um, so crane fly in general, what they do is they breed uh, late summer European, um, and then they they um, the larvae. First of all, the larvae of both species are the ones doing the damage. Okay, so the damage from crane fly usually is you can start seeing. In December, if it's really bad, um, um, you can see it in, uh, um, but in the spring, you know, then it gets worse over time. And what you see is a thinning of lawns. And, and it's especially bad when um, you have really wet years. And, and a few years ago, we had that really wet uh, winter and we saw more crane fly damage. And the populations of crane fly tend to go up and down. But we generally, I always think of crane fly as nature's dethatcher because it's just removing, you know, um, and lawns can tolerate really high populations, healthy lawns, 25 to 50 per square foot. So, um, and the worst case scenario is the lawn sort of thins out and you reseed it, which is not really that bad of a, that bad a thing. So people that, you know, I mean, I can't tell you necessarily the right thing for you to do because um, it's a personal choice, but one option is just let them do their thing and then reseed if it gets bad enough. But in the vast majority of cases, it's, it's thinning, it's not total lawn destruction. I mean, that's very extremely rare for that to happen. In terms of bill bugs, what, bill bugs, what happens is you notice that in the summertime and it looks like drought stress. Um, and bill bugs are little tiny, you know, quarter inch long, uh, white things with orange heads on them. Okay. And, and the crane fly larvae are longer. I don't know if you can see that, you know, maybe that much longer and they're brown and ugly and, um, without legs. Um, and so the best way to, you know, what you can do and well, I guess I should say with bill bugs, 
people think, well, I'm an irrigating, why is it brown? And then, so then they start soaking it and then they, then at some point they start digging. And if you take a flat shovel and you dig a square in the lawn, you know, six inches square and you pull it out and you turn it over and you start sifting through, if there's bugs in there, you'll find them. And so unfortunately with bill bugs, um, they tend to come back every year where populations of crane fly kind of go are drastically up and down. there's so much predation and they're so subject to sort of bad I think cold weather and, and things like that there's not really a correlation between how many adults you see flying around and what the yard damage is where bill bugs tend to come back the same place every year so you end up having to, to, to spray for those and there's a you know usually the sprays are done um, April, May, or June. Um, usually May is a good time for, um, and it's usually you put down a systemic insecticide that, that, cause it has longer residual. And it, um, unfortunately it's usually the, the ones that are the best are the uh, imoclopred, the neonics, which are getting a bat, I mean, which are getting hammered in the media over the bee stuff. So you gotta be, you know, you do have to be careful about that about applying those and, and not having bees around. So Leonard, if you're not sure which grub you're dealing with, um, whichever county you're in, if you have any pictures, you can send them to the master gardeners and they can help you identify which, um, which particular insect it is. Cause it sounds like your management might be a little bit different for those. I haven't heard about it. Alec, have you ever heard of that? Raising this, the ground raising up? I, I think what is going on is uh, he's saying there's a sod layer where the, the turf is separating from the soil underneath it, which that, that sounds like bill bugs to me because right, bill bugs, bugs and, and other yeah true grub type things because they're root feeders. Um, that's why you end up seeing the drought stress where crane fly are foliar feeders. They feed on the surface. Yeah, and sometimes other critters are coming for the grubs and then yeah, that's eating it, like raccoons and things. Yeah, too. that's right. That's yeah. So let's get to Jay's question. He's been so patient. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> um, so he is dealing with velvet grass and has a question about using tenacity. It sounds like it's an herbicide. Will uh, tenacity affect the tall fescue that's growing in his grass? And it sounds like Jay has spent countless hours on his stomach removing the velvet grass and digging it out by its roots. There must be a better way. Do you have any suggestions for Jay and his velvet grass issues? So I, I know velvet grass is labeled for use, or excuse me, tenacity is labeled for use on bent grasses. Um, it's also labeled for tall fescue. So is it labeled for killing tall fescue, Brian, or labeled for use on tall fescue? No, I think you can use it on tall fescue and it is effective on velvet grass. Okay, so, so there you go, you gotta- The only thing I'm not sure of is I haven't looked at the label in a while. Is it, I don't know if it's labeled for home lawns. That's the only thing. And some of them, so there are different products. There's different ways they label for home lawns. Some of them, you can apply them on home lawns, but a licensed pesticide applicator has to apply them. And sometimes they're just not, this is not labeled for home lawns. So, but tenacity is effective on velvet grass and you can apply it to tall fescue. Great, 
Right. So Jay, if it's not something that you're able to find, it's not labeled for you to apply yourself. Definitely. You could probably ask uh, your lawn care company if they're able to do that for you specifically for that. So thank you. Um, Susan still has a question about quack grass elimination. Um, could you go through that? I think it wasn't addressed when we were talking about horsetails. Sure. So I, I think, uh, Quack grass is going to be in the same category as horsetail. Your, your best options are applying non-selective herbicides, uh, systemic ones like uh, glyphosate. Uh, there are going to be very few, I can't think of any selective product that you could put on quack grass to take it out of an existing lawn. The other thing is hand removing it, digging it out. Uh, personally, for me, uh, I've had quack grass issues more in landscape beds than in lawns. Uh, and when it goes into the landscape beds, I typically dig it out by hand. Uh, if it is in your lawn and you start to mow your lawn once a week, that will do a lot to reduce down the quack grass pressure. Thank you. Hopefully that was helpful, Susan. Uh, Stephen wants to know if there's any recommended organic fertilizers. Is there something they should specifically be looking for? Well, I think, um, I mean, one of the common ones they use in golf is something called malorganite, which is made in Milwaukee. It's a prilled, it's a prilled organic fertilizer that's a lot of people have used. Um, you know, the, the, There, you know, you just need a prilled uh, organic fertilizer. I mean, I think organic fertilizers make a, I mean, make a ton of sense on like farms where you can use your own. <laughs> but you know, I guess the original, I should say, the original definition of an organic fertilizer was you know horse manure, cow manure, and they use it on a farm and tilled it into their soil. The problem with organic fertilizers on turf is you need to prill it. You know, you need to have something to put it on down with. Um, but malorganite's a good one. There were some local, Lily Miller used to have some good organic fertilizers. I don't think the brand is so much important. The one thing that's interesting about them though is, is they don't, they're not regulated the same way. So you can have some heavy metal, like even the malorganite I think has some heavy metals in it um, because it's coming from a, you know, sewage sludge or whatever. Um, and it can also have high, high amounts of phosphorus and they don't usually, they don't always put the amounts on there. So, um, but, um, so I would just, I think just environmentally, I would look for one that's local because the whole point is you're trying to help the environment, I think. And given the fact that you got to put 20 times as much fertilizer down as a synthetic, you got to ship it. And so um, you don't want to be shipping it across the country um, if you're trying to do something nice environmentally. So that would be my recommendation is to try to find a local source. And I don't have, Alex, do you have any names of anything? Um, I know Down to Earth is available at a lot of the local stores and there's a, there is a lawn version Down to Earth product. I think it's got, uh, I was just looking at it uh, 8% nitrogen, 3% phosphorus, 5% uh, potassium. <clears throat> Great. 
we're almost at the at the top of the hour. Um, how about we take one more question? Um, Lynn is in Coos County, but maybe this applies up in the Willamette Valley. Um, they've been told to add lime to the lawns. Can you discuss the timing and rate of application of lime? Sure, I, I can talk about this. So Lynn, the first thing I would tell you is if you haven't taken a soil test to see if you have a low pH, don't apply the lime. You should take a soil test first and see what pH you're at. And lawns typically don't need lime till they get down below a pH of six. So if we get to a pH of like 5.5, that's time to lime your lawn. And if you put around 25 pounds of lime down in the spring and then again in the fall, so around 50 pounds total of lime, that should bring your pH from 5.5 back up to 6.5. So we're talking about 25 or 50 pounds per thousand square feet. So spend the money on a $10 soil test to see if you actually need to put down the lime to raise the soil pH. Uh, if I had to pick between liming my lawn and fertilizing with something containing nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, I would pick the NP and K every time. Uh, I know we have areas at our research farm that have relatively low pH. They've never been limed and we fertilize them four times a year with nitrogen and they look fantastic. So take a soil test first. Yeah, and uh, Jenny was doing a follow-up to that, asking if OSU Extension does soil tests. We don't do soil tests in our offices. Right now, we're all working remotely all across the state. Some of our offices might do pH tests, but we're not offering, we're not able to offer that right now. Um, we do have a nice list of commercial labs that we can send. So we are at our time. There are a couple questions. So John and Patrick will be following up with you um, individually on your questions. And then thank you everyone for joining us. I know there, there's a lot of resources that um, Alec and the Beaver uh, Turf team have put together. So um, everybody that registered, will send out uh, some links to you on more researches and, and uh, readings that you can do on your lawns. Um, so thank you both to Alec and Brian. I really appreciate you spending the hour with us. It's um, always wonderful to chat with you guys. Thank you everybody. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for joining us and check out more great yard and gardening information online at extension.oregonstate.edu.